Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Well, um, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters. Thank you very much for coming. I'm very acutely conscious of standing between you, sitting between you and the main reason for your attendance, and I'm not going to do anything by way of an introduction. Nor am I going to say, as people boringly do, that my guest needs no introduction, because actually he could do with quite a long one. There's quite a a backstory here. Um, Ian McEwan has been raising an astonishing body of fiction over the last quarter of a century and more, in fact. Um, There is a novelist, or there was, alas, he's dead now, Peter de Vries in America. Good New Yorker writer, good minor novelist, could write tragic and comic novels. He was once asked what his ambition was as a novelist, and he said, after a pause, he said, I think what I'd like is to have a mass audience large enough for my elite audience to despise. (laughs) I think that's, by the way, the secret ambition of many writers, and I'm certain it was no part of Ian's design. But he has, as I noticed on his most recent visit to the United States, achieved, he will not like it if I say rock star status, but an extraordinary audience, an extraordinary turnout for his, for his writing, while making, as it were, no sacrifice in order to get it, if you follow me. He's managed, without trying, to have it both ways. If you feel an undertone of bitterness in my voice, you're well tuned in. Um, what I thought what I would simply do is invite Ian to answer a couple of my questions, and then um, invite you to put your own. I thought I'd start by asking, do you set aside a special time for writing? And are any of... <laughs> and how much are your novels autobiographical? <laughs> so we could get that out of the way. Um, questions like this will not be tolerated, uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, but they have at least been put. Um, here's what I wanted to, have long wanted to ask, in fact. It, it seems to me that there is a great influence of music in your work. Why do I think that? Would, I, would, would that surmise be correct? Well, I love it. Um, and yes, I've written about it a fair amount. Probably classical music in Amsterdam. And that was really uh, great fun for me, to write about a composer trying to write a symphony and trying to imagine what this highly abstract matter uh, would be like, what it would be like, and how necessary it would be to sort of visualize the structure simply. Uh, rock and roll intermittently. Uh, when I started writing in the early 70s, I sometimes used to hear uh, a good guitarist play, let's say Ray Kudo, whoever, and be so stirred. I'd think, oh, what am I going to do? How can I join in? And I'm afraid fiction was, was the only wailing sound I could make. Uh, so that, that also was born of a kind of impatience. Uh, nearer to the business of actually writing, I suppose, the pleasure and rhythm and beat and pulse of sentences is also very important. And uh, although I don't have any music near me when I'm working, I love to read aloud with that, with that sense of uh, what Updike calls, uh, try to get those sentences that have got a spring in the step. Um, and also get 
uh, Kundera, Milan Kundera, who's written, I think, quite beautifully about writing itself, get the, the gap between sentences to carry some weight. So there's a little bit of gearing, a little bit of talk. Um, and I think that also has something to do with, with love of music. And you've written about it as being composed, but you've also written about it as described as being played, as with Perone's son in Saturday, for example. The yes. Quite a, uh, quite a minute and exact description of what the music is doing and who's doing it. One of the pleasures and privileges of writing is to um, distribute among your characters your own lost and private ambitions. So, yes, I would have loved to have been uh, a halfway decent uh, blues guitarist. Um, I can't even play the guitar, I should make it this clear. Uh, there's no chance. Although on my 50th birthday, uh, in that uh, in granting of a second adolescence, which only a, a loving wife can do, uh, Annalena did give me a guitar. Um, it sits accusing me every time I cross the sitting room. Uh, and yes, you know, I can play, a, was it Smoke on the Water or whatever, you know. So very nice to uh, give to uh, a son, as it were, a fictional son, even though he's based a little on my own son, uh, this expertise. And imagine the kind of heart-swelling pride one would feel. And I still can, listening to music, uh, run a kind of uh, teenage fantasy. I, I, I honestly can say I don't play the air guitar, um, <laughs> even though I am that air guitar generation. But I can still make my heart go a little faster imagining that it was me. It could have been me with that. It should have been me. <laughs> um, I didn't know you were going to mention Kundera, but as soon as you did, I remembered something that you used to mean, I dare say still does mean a lot to you which he made a lot of use of, which is his um, famous lapidary statement in the Book of Laughter and Forgetting that the struggle of man against power is the struggle of man against forgetting. And I also noticed that a historical perspective is important to you. In yeah. I mean, that Kundra line came up, I think, uh, for me the first time in the Plowman's Lunch movie. Uh, and yes, uh, sometime around the mid-'80s, I became very interested in... Uh, widening out the scope of my fiction and making history a, a kind of element, a sort of active, um, pushing forward element. And, uh, I liked that line of Kundra's, um, the struggle uh, against power being a struggle against forgetting. And uh, there have been many political debates, and there's certainly one been going right through uh, this festival, and you yourself have been part of it, in which one really sees the necessity of a historical sense that to make an argument or to maintain some consistency in something, it does need a memory. And uh, um, we've talked about this privately. I mean, there are moments of despair when one feels that any political matter, if it's addressed without a sense of uh, where, how we got there and um, how important it is to, to marshal a sense of continuity of a threat, uh, a narrative, in fact, uh, is absolutely crucial to an understanding. But in point of the struggle against power, in other words, for, if you like, for justice or for liberty, that there's, the contradiction may obtrude itself in that very often great injustice is done by people who won't let go of the past, who are obsessed with it, who remember too much. A person, an individual who can't forget anything, has an inefficient 
cortex, part of the job of memory is to discard. And people who are focused too much on the past can be violent and, and cruel, can they not? Is that not a trap under the Kundera? Yeah, because then we bring in another uh, key writer here, which is Borges, and we always uh, like to evoke Funes the Memorius, or Funes the Memorius, who could forget nothing at all, not a single thing, and dies of a coronary as a result. Uh, a life so clotted with event and sense data uh, that he expires. Yes, of course, I mean, selection becomes crucial in all forms of narrative. Uh, but yeah, I, I still do feel, though, that in the core curriculum uh, of, of life, history has to be um, central right there. And I wanted to press you a bit on the concept of contradiction uh, as it applies to you, or duality, perhaps, I'd better say. Um, uh, when you were writing, say, your early short stories in Between the Sheets, maybe as late as Cement Garden, and I would say perhaps as far up as the oratorio you did with Michael Barclay, or Shall We Die? There was, I remember Martin used to tease you as being that hippie McEwen, and you have those glasses, and you like the alternative uh, society, and you had a great, have, I believe, a great interest in feminism, very concerned about nuclear weapons, the environment, so forth. And yet there's also, it seems to me, a much more uh, hard McEwen. Um, come from a military family, very interested in, in war, history of war, um, confrontations with the hard sciences as well. I'm, I'm assuming this must be a very useful duality to have. Yeah, I guess it's like... Not to answer uh, my own question. Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, I have... Got this uh, enduring fascination for those boys' things, you know, like, you know, well, just what is the range of that missile? I mean, that, there's, there's horrible facts, uh, uh, there's train spotterish kind of facts that uh, girls have no time for at all, uh, still hold me to some extent. But you do have uh, your feminine side. I do have my feminine side. And you're in yeah. touch with sex. Uh, yeah, and the inner child. We yeah. talk about <laughs> to that. say nothing. <laughs> say nothing of yeah. the whimpering <laughs> infant within me. But yes, well, I had a mother and a father, and uh, I guess uh, recombination being what it is in genetics, uh, I took uh, my half share from each. But, okay. Ça va sans dire, but pressing you on, the, on how, it's, what, okay. how you can mobilize it, yeah. or uh, make it a creative tension, if you like, fictionally. I'm not sure that I feel it as two separate things. I mean, quite honestly, when it comes to the matter of writing fiction, it all feels like... Well, there's probably no other art form in which, it seems to me anyway, in which the self is uh, so much on the lines and so much in use. I mean, Henry James, uh, to evoke uh, another writer who's written beautifully about writing. Uh, it's a fabulous essay which I recommend to everyone. You can just get it off the internet. The Art of Fiction, which is a mere book review but contains so many gems, um, beautiful perceptions of, of the writer's art. Towards the end of that, he says that uh, finally the, the limit on the quality of a piece of art, uh, and he says, I'm, this may sound like a truism, I feel obliged to say it, the limit on the quality of a piece of art of any kind is the limit on the uh, 
quality of the mind of its composer. And it's that whole mind that, that has to come into play. For example, I mean, give a tedious, immediate example. You cannot say to a close friend, look, don't take this personally, but I think your latest novel is, is terrible. Um, that is a personal remark. I mean, you, you cannot separate these things out. Uh, I always take it very personally, anyway. <laughs> so, I'm not sure I can really answer your question. You, you wrote a, a very nice essay about me once, not so long ago, in which you, I thought you were um, rather uh, echoing Matthew Arnold. Um, there's sort of two, two voices there are. Um, and there are two McEwans. I, it, what can I say? If you're inside here, looking out, uh, it, it feels like there's just one. <laughs> Sorry. You don't know I couldn't. <laughs> no, you have all, all my... The solidarity in that and sympathy too. The master, Henry James, always slightly annoys me because he both says at one point, try to be one of those upon whom nothing is lost, which I think is wonderful. And then he says, and write about what you know, which is almost an incitement to people to produce yeah. uh, self-centered nonsense or unreadable uh, narcissistic reflections. He also said um, the first obligation of the writer is to be interesting, and um, he isn't always uh, following his own advice um, <laughs> in this. Uh, I've, I've always had difficulty with who the late... Said that he, who said that he chewed more than he bit off? Well, yeah. Somebody. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> only, only a close friend, I must think. Yeah. Must have. Yeah. Well, all writers have their disciples, and it's always Judas who does the biography. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Mr. Judas is on the phone. <laughs> Where were we? Uh, the art of fiction. The art of fiction. Um, another thing he says, uh, we always end up with the master, I think, yes. um, is that uh, the reader is in a contract with the writer, and in this contract, according to James, uh, the reader cannot question the subject matter, only the treatment of it. You, you cannot say to the writer, well, I don't want to read a novel about uh, a girl who can't find a husband living in a, a manor house in a, a nice park. Uh, um, you're wrong to write about that. Or, I, you know, you cannot write about a middle-aged man falling in love with a 13-year-old uh, girl. What you must uh, judge only is, uh, and this is James' very strong point, how, how this matter is rendered and delivered to you. Uh, and that meant a lot to me when I started writing. I thought, well, you're free to do anything you like. All that matters is to, to do it uh, as best you can, and, and as carefully and honestly as you can. And I was fairly shocked then when my first uh, couple of volumes of stories were published, how amazed and horrified people were uh, by the content. I mean, that, that really was a, um, a matter of great surprise to me, of innocent surprise, because I thought we had fought all the battles about content. Henry James had laid it out. Uh, Joyce, and then later Burroughs, Genet, you know, the list is endless. Lawrence, of course, had really, and then you know, in my lifetime, especially Roth, uh, had hilariously you know, suggested that there is nothing that could not be said or addressed as long as you did it you know, beautifully or hilariously or you know, tragically. Orwell's rejection letter from Dial Press in New York for the, returning the manuscript of Animal Farm says it's impossible to sell animal stories in the United States. Yep. 
It's in the land of Disney also. It's, it's, it's the best rejection letter, I think, ever written. Um, well, I'm glad you mentioned that, because uh, I used to submit stories regularly to The New Yorker, and uh, I once read a story called Reflections of a Kept Ape. It's published in In Between the Sheets. And it's um, a first-person narrative by an ape who lives with a novelist who's trying to write her second novel. She's had, she's had a big success with it first, and she's having a really hard time. And it's a reflection, really, on um, cross-species sex and, um, and writing. And I sent this off to The New Yorker and got a letter back. And this was in the days of Mr. Sean, uh, who had very clear ideas un-Jamesian ideas of, uh, about fiction in this respect. And they got a letter back with that Orwellian tint. It said, we, we enjoyed the story very much, but unfortunately we do not accept stories with animal narrators. <laughs> so the Dial Press clearly yes. knew their business. <laughs> they knew. They knew what they were about. Well, Ronald Reagan starred with an ape in his first film, Bedtime for Bonzo, yeah, but he refused to take the same role in the sequel which was to be uh, Bonzo Goes to College, <laughs> on the grounds that an ape going to college wasn't really believable. <laughs> um, I don't know what made me remind... Well, you reminded me of that. Yeah. Um, well, let's not forget Kafka's lecture to an academy, which is an ape who's been um, brought back uh, from the jungle, looked after well, uh, got a jolly good education, and... Um, um, actually, it's not, not much read, uh, this story. Lecture to an Academy uh, is an ape story, um, animal narrator, bloody good, um, reflecting on um, the long journey from um, tough times, grinding poverty in the jungle. Fighting his way out of the... To a professorship. Um, <laughs> and I would have challenged uh, the New Yorker not to have published that story. Yes. But I remember that people used to, I'm not sure that people still don't, but I remember people used to think that you were somewhat frightening, in a way. Mm. That there was something dark and menacing about your work, and that uh, something moody and sinister. Well, there was something quite dark and menacing about my work. The, the problem was they thought that they were therefore, it was, you. It was me. And, uh, and in a sense, they were right. Um, but I didn't menace people uh, as such. Uh, but I didn't much like that reputation. I mean, I, I had to live with it. Um, and the macabre joke, you know, went, which went on, still goes on. Every now and then, a fresh-faced journalist who's new to the game has been in the file and um, writes this Ian Macabre thing as if for the first time. Um, it's always quite painful. I feel almost protective. So don't run that joke, not just for my sake, but for yours. Get found out. Yeah, you've been your fingers in the pot. Well, I want to ask you about about Saturday. Um, and the first thing I want to ask you, uh, this is not to flatter Ian, but it's to help me. How many people here have read Saturday now? By now, well done, good. Well then, okay, because I, I was afraid that, that I might lose the audience if I. There is a point. This won't spoil it for any of you who haven't read it yet. There is a point at which the main character, Dr. Perone, is, is, as it were, confessing or admitting or at any rate acknowledging that he can't get any nourishment out of the way fiction has been written lately. 
and you give some examples of what he can't take. And one is, you know, it's actually a bit Shawnian, this objection. Who wants to read about a jumbo jet that explodes over London and sends all these people down with all their luggage? And who wants to read this or that magical realist? And, and for heaven's sake, um, how, how ridiculous to have a scene where a, a young man goes back in time and sees his parents discussing aborting him through the window of a pub. So I think that um, A Child in Time is still in many ways my, your, my, my favorite of your novels. That is, by the way, that scene, for those of you who don't know. But I really couldn't detect, and I think I've read you quite closely, whether you meant to say farewell to a certain kind of fiction or not at that point. And I sort of need to know. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I, I do feel a little impatience with... Uh, I tried to reread 100 Years of Solitude um, two or three years ago and find myself itching with impatience. Yeah. Uh, and wondered if this thing had not really um, led too many writers down a path in which they had absolved themselves of uh, some responsibilities towards the world uh, and its physical laws plausibly rendered. Um, I mean, the world as it is seems to me so amazingly fascinating that if characters can sprout wings and fly out the window at any moment, um, something, some tension uh, has disappeared. And rather, as I said before, I think this, it's rather <clears throat> like playing tennis without a net. I mean, if anything can happen, possibly. This is just a suspicion I have. If anything can happen in a novel, regardless of the laws of physics, uh, then nothing really matters. And uh, that sort of psychological tension you need between people rests to some extent on the fact that they cannot suddenly turn into caterpillars, unless in a children's book, or, or fly out the window. Uh, maybe that's that hard McEwen uh, who loves the science. Uh, no nonsense. Yeah. Um, now, the feminine side of me, well, she thinks the same. <laughs> um, she's in accord. Uh, so, uh, again, one of the privileges of fiction is, is to take a view that you half hold, wouldn't defend too closely, because the, the, there are some great books written in this tradition. I think Tin Drum certainly won. Uh, but you can sort of give this to a character. Uh, I then uh, proceeded to have in, insult a number of my contemporaries, uh, Paul Oster, Salman Rushdie, uh, Gunter Grass, and I thought, crikey, I'll be in for it. So I better chuck myself in there too. Um, it was self-defense. Right, but it would still put you, wouldn't it? I can quite see your irritation about Marquez, by the way, because in the 100 Years of Soldier, the only bit I can still bear to read is the, the epidemic of insomnia that leads to the epidemic of amnesia, because people forget what things are called. And that's that's such a great warning against amnesia, but too. That's a good short story idea. Yeah, that's that's, that's, that's what Borges would do. What, yes, but I was going to say it also puts you, it can, in a way, put you against Borges, because his first essay on, which seems to invent magical realism, I think it's, in the, it's as early as the 30s, he says, in this world, there are unicorns as there are trees. It's easy it as a given. I mean, yeah. Maybe he just does it better. Well, I don't think there are unicorns, but I'm perfectly happy for people to imagine there are. Uh, and I think that magical realism <laughs> flourishes best in short fiction. 
I mean, what is, what is Kafka's metamorphosis? Man you know, wakes from uneasy sleep, uh, finds himself turned into a giant uh, bug, cockroach, however you translate that, uh, is of magical realism. What makes it so wonderful is that this, this only, only this single premise, and then the rest is painstakingly real. You know, the, the caring sister, the lodgers, uh, the whole business, the rotten apple stuck in his side. I mean, it's that beautifully observed um, tension uh, in which the real then has to sort of sit with uh, this extraordinary first sentence. Everything flows from that first sentence. And where does it end? Um, Samsa is dead, and his sister goes on a tram ride with her parents. They um, reach the end of the uh, line. They're about to get out, and the parents exchange knowing glances as the young woman stands and stretches her limbs and thinks it's time she'll be looking for a husband. Uh, very common thing in Kafka, the, the sort of helpless, weak, like the hunger artist, the helpless, weak fool uh, dying for his art, um, while someone with a, a physicality that's unstoppable, but beautifully, uh, physically realized, uh, flourishes in this moment. But imagine metamorphosis done as an 800-page thing you use to keep the door open on a hot summer's afternoon. Um, it would die. I mean, things that rest on these single premises need the short story. Um, I don't think I'll give anything away if I say that one of your email names at least contains this. Actually, it doesn't give anything away, but it is the, the word Ulysses which I've always thought, I must say, was quite daring of you. Yeah. And that you're perfectly, perfectly entitled to. Now you've written a novel that takes place, the action of which takes place, all within one day. Mm. So I'm not going to ask you the connection between those two things, but I want to ask you about how uh, Dr. Perot, on this one day when there's a confrontation in the streets over the war impending with Saddam Hussein, registers very exquisitely all the arguments for and all the arguments against. There's the, the joke about the American uh, preacher who was in a f fairly flat earthish community who said, well, I can preach it round or I can preach it flat. I can, uh, he, yeah. he can do it at either at need, and he is always doing it. In fact. He's always arguing with himself, and he's always putting both cases, it seems to me, at their strongest. Um, did it help you to make up has it helped you to make up your mind, or would you rather remain the register of that argument? Because he never decides, does he? He never decides, uh, and I suppose I gave him the full range of my own, uh, what I called in my worst time, moments, uh, confusion, and other times, uh, ambivalence about this. Uh, I was not a useful subscriber to uh, the volume Writers Take Sides. Um, uh, and nor would I have been much good as Foreign Secretary uh, because I had deep misgivings uh, about the enterprise and yet uh, uh, a powerful sense too. Having read uh, The Republic of Fear, I remember that big uh, impact on me in its first edition uh, under a pseudonym in the late 80s. And also in connection with... Uh, the, yep. Um, in connection with the uh, Rushdie fatwa, meeting uh, Iraqi exiles in 89 to talk about this when, when someone himself could not come out. So I was his emissary. And so I followed 
the matter. And uh, you know, we don't want to get another Iraqi debate here, but um, I had very, very mixed feelings, and they were constantly in conflict. I, uh, the risk of some disloyalty to our sponsor, I, I wrote a piece um, about my own ambivalence for The Guardian was turned down. So for the first time in my life, I found myself in the pages of The Telegraph. And, yeah. uh, it's good. Um, but there it goes. Uh, ambivalence was not much in fashion. People wanted you to be uh, one thing or the other. Uh, on the one hand, of course, uh, a terrible fascist dictatorship could, could come to an end. On the other hand, perhaps it would cost even more lives uh, than it would to do nothing. I, so that, I gave all that to Henry Perrone. And then I found it actually it was much more useful. Uh, it was more narratively rich to have that, um, that ambivalence within one person rather than simply have, uh, uh, have it as pitched battles. I mean, I do give him a, a battle with his daughter. And he's like many of us, you know, he, who have these kinds of feelings. Uh, he's a hawk when he's talking to his daughter, but when he's talking to his anaesthetist, uh, who is even more of a hawk than he is. He suddenly finds himself becoming a dove. That's why he's a neurosurgeon uh, and uh, not a general or a foreign secretary. Uh, same for me. Well, that's a very good evocation of dualism with which to, I think, because we've now exhausted half our time, I'm sad to see, um, to ask you, ladies and gentlemen, if any of you would like to put a question to Mr. McEwen. And there are microphones um, available in both aisles. So if you extend a fin, they'll come and find you. Can I start? Yeah. Okay. Is that okay? Yep. Yeah. I'm one, one and a half times through your book. I read it once with such intense enjoyment. I'm now halfway through it again. Now, one of the questions that occurred to, to me is that you are so perfect in technical and medical detail. I happen to be, med be medically qualified. You've got the, all the nuances of the neurosurgeon and the neuro neurologists and an enormous amount of clinical detail. How did you do this? Um. Well, I found a, a neurosurgeon uh, at the National Hospital, name of Neil Kitchen, and over a period of about two years, I uh, first of all just sat and talked to him whenever he had the time, which was rare. Um, I thought there were occasions when I worked hard and the people around me worked hard, but I don't think I ever saw anyone work as hard as this surgeon. Uh, and then I started attending uh, his... Uh, operations um, and became as it, I sort of became a neurosurgeon for a bit because I had to go into the stinking, fetid, squalid uh, little room where they get changed. Uh, in fact, I describe it in the novel. I mean, if you're worried about MRSA, you uh, have to tell you, uh, and the atrogenic uh, diseases, well, uh, it was amazing. It was I think, as I say in the novel, uh, it, it, was a, it was like the changing room in, in a borstal where kids are far away from home and no one's looking after them. Uh, anyway, I would emerge from there in my uh, bloody clogs, racks of them, um, 
and my green scrubs, and I would go and stand for hours um, watching Neil Kitchen at work. And uh, spent a lot of time in the coffee room, too. Uh, very pokey, amazingly cramped um, space. Extraordinary conditions that people were working under. Many things surprised me. One was uh, the fact that squashed up together would be the senior consultant in neurosurgery and the guy whose job it was to replace the Twix bars in all the vending machines and how relaxed and easy all that was. My notion of the consultant as a godlike figure in a three-piece suit with pinstripes and a little fob watch uh, all melted away. Uh, it was more like the atmosphere on a film crew. Um, and that uh, boy side of me lapped up all those details. I mean, I, uh, I was criticized by a number of readers for putting in too much detail. In fact, I took a lot out. Uh, um, early readers, including uh, my wife and one or two friends, said, this is going a little too far. But for me, it was a kind of exoticism, such as you might find in a poem by Keats. You know, place names that mean nothing to you, but yet sort of evoke a wonderful faraway place. I thought some of the names of uh, the, the trillion ways in which a brain can go wrong uh, had a kind of sinister uh, beauty to them. Uh, so I had to sort of wrench myself away from this, because I, I realized that this is something of a solitary pleasure. Not everyone has this. <laughs> but... Um, it leads to blindness. Yes. Uh, solitary pleasures often do. Um, what I, I mean, I, I've enjoyed uh, this matter of researching novels. And what, what you generally find is people love talking about their work. I mean, people who love their work love talking about it. They can no longer talk about it to their colleagues because they're all doing it and they're all, you know, they take it for granted. So someone asking you quite the, the, the equivalent, as it were, in neuroscience of saying, you know, how hard do you press on the pencil and where do you get your ideas from? Uh, I was asking exactly those you know, those questions, and sat with a notebook and amassed it over two years, and, but sort of lived it. I mean, I, I liked um, watching the way it, 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 it was almost like bullfighting, that a surgeon could be at work on one patient, and there were two others in different operating theaters waiting for him, and as soon as he had done the really difficult bit, the registrar would take over, and we'd all sweep uh, through a corridor into another room and there would be something else, maybe a minor procedure, like you know, that would all be done in 15 minutes and they'd be out into something else. All day, I mean, it just went on and on and on. Uh, I'd arrive at eight o'clock, but he'd already been there since six. By 11 o'clock, I was thinking, I'd just love to sit down for a minute. You know? uh, but for them, not at all, they just kept going. Um, and it, it, was, it was a real eye-opener for me, I, I loved it. Can you tell me that you now get letters from pulmonary surgeons and proctologists and so on saying, if you want to do a yeah, novel about I, us... We'll... I, <laughs> I had a wistful letter from an ENT surgeon saying, should your next hero be an ENT man? Uh, I'm your... <laughs> but very kindly. I'm sorry, I, it isn't really my turn. I must ask you something. Has it... I think you're not a religious believer, are you? No. Does, has, did this uh, strengthen your view that, as it were, we don't um, have bodies, but we are bodies? 
Well, I, I don't think my view could be strengthened on this. I, uh, but certainly, to some extent, confirmed. Uh, for example, once you see the extraordinary wonder of a living brain, and the, the surgeon, and it, it, I'd have to be standing at his elbow, and he would point out the motor strip. Um, any damage there, the consequences would be um, lifelong, irreversible. How to get, make a route around this. Um, here's the auditory part. Here's the occipital visual. You know, all those things that make us, you know, give us this teeming sense of uh, uh, of the present uh, relate to physical processes. And uh, part of the ambition of writing sanity was to give some sort of love and life and richness to, to the material view. I mean, I, I think the material view of life is, in fact, more interesting than any religious view because it places such demands uh, on our sense of curiosity and, um, and, and the rigors of our pursuits, whether you wish to understand the human condition through art or uh, a particular process through science. Either way, they seem to be parallel processes of discovery in using different languages, but uh, wondrous nevertheless. Um, in a way that um, curiosity is not central to the religious project. The religious project rests, of course, on revealed truth. Um, I think discovering unrevealed truth is far more interesting. Very good. I'm sorry for that usurpation. There was a lady already with a microphone over there. Um, I want to ask about the um, poem by Matthew Arnold that uh, occurs quite late on in the book and um, which has a significant impact on what happens after that, but also seems to have an impact on, it seems to be about what's been happening up until that point. Um, and has got in it the, uh, the evocative image of the man standing at the window, which is how you open the book in the first place. And um, I was interested to know uh, at what point does that poem, um, did that poem come to you uh, was it was that part of the conception of the book, or was it as you were going through and, and developing the uh, the story? Uh, I should explain because uh, for people who haven't read the novel, there, there comes a scene in about four fifths of the way through Saturday when a situation is diffused or at least deflected uh, by the reading um, of uh, a Matthew Arnold poem. Um, Dover Beach. I came across it fairly late. I mean, I, I was trying not to think what would be in this scene too closely while I was writing the rest of the novel, partly because I wanted to be in the position of, the, of letting it unfold once I knew everything that I'd written so far. And then I remembered Dover Beach and found that nearly everything that I wanted was already there. Not only a poem that asks... Um, we assume a lover to come to the window to observe the, the, the uh, English Channel Straits um, and to reflect on uh, the human condition, um, but also a, a sort of strange mix of uh, musicality and extraordinary despair. I mean, it is a very pessimistic poem. We, we're sometimes seduced away, I think, from uh, recognition of that. You know, where there's you know, no place for love or peace or rest or and that our lot is pain. Uh, so it was, a, it was a serendipity to find that I'd already, uh, that it just was the poem, no other poem would do. It was, 
fortunate moment for me. I'm sorry for those of you in the middle of rows, but I'm sure we can deal with that, can't we? By passing them along. Uh, the lady in the, in the center. If you'll just be patient. <coughs> it's not fair otherwise. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, as you've mentioned uh, during your talk, you're very well known for tackling really unpleasant or difficult situations and writing about them beautifully. But can you think of a subject matter unpleasant or difficult enough that even you would have trouble writing about it? Um, can you get? Golf? <laughs> VAT? <laughs> oh, no, I, I can think of a few that... Um, no, to be quite honest, no. Uh, no, I don't think so. I think... I, I mean, obviously... Um, one, I'm not, never going to sit down and say, well, what, what's the most unpleasant thing I can think of? Um, and let's get there quick. Um, but... Um, the sense of freedom uh, is very important. And actually, again, to come back to the art of fiction, Henry James, another great thing the master said, um, or suggests really, is that, is that all artists are trying to find uh, um, a mode of expression that will make them feel free. And I really understand what that means, when, especially when I'm starting a novel. What is the, both the subject matter and the means of which this is going to be put across that would make me feel completely free. And if that involves treading somewhere uh, dark, uh, unpleasant, then that, the freedom is, is predicated upon that sense that you can go anywhere. That said, uh, again, one of the impulses writing Saturday was to see, uh, to set myself the challenge to see if I could do uh, happiness. I mean, Henri de Montalon famously said, happiness writes white. Um, I think I must have repeated it myself over the years, defending the darkness of my own stories, that happiness would be rather dull. And I thought, well, is it actually true? I mean, um, so I have tried to celebrate sex, love, wine, um, work, uh, the city. Um, these things aren't only um, causes of problems, but you know, how, how, how can we reflect on them that would be um, rich and warm uh, without um, necessarily being dark? And of course, then I ran into the sort of gauntlet of uh, readers who said, well, you're just so complacent. Um, how dare you uh, have these characters who are blissed out, uh, blissed out uh, too much. Um, so you know, what can you do? That's all right. Um, Good. I always think in your novels... That Can you the, wave your arms so I can... Yeah. So, yeah. Stand up. I always think in your novels the, extra, the ordinary... The extraordinary seems to happen to the ordinary in the sense that you're led down paths which grow out of, out of ordinary situations or... And I just wondered, first of all, if you regard those situations as extraordinary and secondly, do you ever live in trepidation that you may eventually find yourself driving along and you run over a sheep and the farmer and he invites you in and suddenly the whole thing happens to you. <laughs> Which is exactly what I was imagining last night when I was thinking about you. 
you know, what did you do with this sheep? <laughs> Mutton dressed as lamb. Well, I used to think uh, as a child that nothing ever worked out the way you imagined it was going to. And I had a very powerful superstitious sense then that um, if I thought ahead in, in the darkest possible terms, I would have excluded the possibility of destiny offering at least that possibility, so that, that you would block out those points. And I often wonder if I'm still not living with a kind of rather puerile sense of trying to allay certain ghosts. Uh, it's been said before, but I think it's worth pursuing this for a minute. Um, what could have been more ordinary than people turning up for work on the 11th of September a few years ago, uh, and, and what greater transformation and eruption into the ordinary of, of, of the vile and, and extraordinary. Uh, so that for a few days afterwards, or even a few months after, people were saying, I thought, even at the time, quite ridiculous things like, this is the end of fiction. Or, and, I mean, even the Holocaust didn't bring the end of art, so I can see that 9-11 would either. But um, it seemed to bring into our lives uh, the, the most sort of sculpted, intense and awful sense and way in which most terrible things that happen, long illnesses apart, uh, happen suddenly and usually erupt in, in, into the sort of, into the plain sailing bits of one's day. But uh, do I worry, uh, well, of course. I mean, uh, especially if, if you reach, um, I don't know if you ever do this, run you know, through Freud's prescriptions of uh, you know, happiness, it is good physical health, uh, interesting work, satisfying personal relationships. I mean, we can all tick those off and find we're getting scoring two out of three or one out of three. And then there comes those periods, they don't last forever, but you know, when you're scoring on all three, there's always a little anxiety. You know, you know it can't last. And that's the nature of you know, loss is going to be built into this. Age, everything is going to go. Not even happiness brings you happiness. Not even happiness. Very good. Uh, <laughs> could you say that in Latin? Felix non. So yes, it, it does. It does bother me. People can't hear you, so I, I won't. We'll. I mean, why not? I want to know uh, the film, the movie, which uh, represent uh, the best, uh, excuse me for my English, I am Italian, your, your book, your story. Which film do you think best represented? Um, without hesitation, The Cement Garden of Andrew Birkin. I don't know if you know, it it's, um, was made uh, 15 years ago. Um, Andrew Birkin made it on a shoestring with a uh, cast and um, technical crew, mostly from um, either um, film school or casting from his own family. 
and uh, a, a labour of love for him too, because he had been working on a script for um, ever since the novel was published in '78, and I'd seen I don't know a, a dozen versions of this over a period of 15 years, and I thought that uh, I mean it's very hard to satisfy novelists about their films, but I, I thought that it was extraordinary, and Charlotte Gainsbourg in it, um, and it had um, it seemed to me that whole sentences had become cuts that it was, it was filmed at the level of the sentence. Uh, very gratifying for me. Uh, I love that film, actually. Uh, and the rest, I, I sort of thought I had reasonably well treated. Uh, I know these things can go terribly wrong. Um, the one that went wrong, probably the most spectacularly, was the one I did the script for myself, which was The Innocent. We never seemed to get off the ground with that properly, uh, even though uh, all the ingredients had Anthony Hopkins, Isabella Rossellini, John Sleshens as directing. Uh, Could have but, been a contender. But it was, it was, yeah. it all just turned into mush. I don't know how it happened. A human mush. Um, do you believe that um, the there's a growing consensus that the Booker Prize that was um, that you won for uh, Amsterdam was in a way um, overdue and was actually was due uh, for enduring love. Um, I've been reading quite a lot of um, um, pieces saying that enduring love should have won the book or at least been considered for the shortlist. And do do you concur with that, the opinion that um, it's a more substantial piece of work than say um, Amsterdam? And, and can well, you say a few words about Martin Amis? Um. <laughs> well, it's fine if, if, if fate would have delivered me the Booker Prize for uh, Amsterdam and Enduring Love. You know, I wouldn't have been complaining about that. Um, it was odd with Amsterdam, actually. I uh, feel very protective of this novel, because when it was published, I had the best response to a piece of work I'd ever had in my life. And I never had such good reviews, because usually my reviews, like I guess most people's reviews, very mixed. No? Yes. Right. Okay. Thank you. Um, and when this slender book won the Booker Prize, suddenly uh, everyone turned on it, and I thought, oh, poor book, you know. Um, I mean, I was very happy, but I thought it was tough for the book. Go, you know, that little book. Um, suddenly, uh, got, uh, it took a lot of kickings. Um, so I feel uh, a little protective of it. It was tough fortune for it to win the Booker and be so short. <laughs> but then I think of Napoleon, you know. And talking of short but tough people, you were asked about Little Keith. Yeah, what was the question about Little Keith? A few words on Young Amos. Oh, well, my, why not? It seemed like much to ask. Well, 
one of my dearest friends and, um, you know, who was it said of whom I'd leave spend an hour in, uh, it was about Kit Marlowe, wasn't it? I'd leave spend an hour in, in, in his presence than with any other man on earth. But, um, we, Christopher and I uh, traveled to Uruguay to um, uh, spend some time with Martin, whom uh, Hitch cruelly still calls Little Keith. Uh, those of you who know Martin's work will know exactly the origins of this. And found him, I thought... Uh, himself Little Keith. Yeah, does he? He signs his letters, Keith. Oh, not to me. I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> Should have said anything. It's a bond, um, you wouldn't understand. Yeah. <laughs> so the uh, ten days we spent there, or was it nine days, um, passed into our uh, personal history as named by you as the effulgence. Uh, very good term, I thought. But anyway, to answer your question, he seems very well. He's you know, 8,000 miles away. Uh, he's been there two and a half years, uh, working hard, uh, as happy as I've ever seen him. And um, I'm dying to read the book of short stories, of which the, you must have read, I hope you've read, uh, the story published in the Guardian Review um, about uh, all those doubles of Saddam. Um, I, I mean, a superb short story. So I, my heart leapt when I read that. That's what he's doing, writing a number of stories around um, you know, the events of the last few years. But anyway, what are we doing talking about him? It's all meant to be about me. <laughs> not just a, not, he's not just a, a wit, but a cause of wit in others. That's why. Yeah. You did that very well. Thank you. Um, I think we have time for at least two more, if you, especially if you can condense your questions. Not that you haven't been. You've been too awfully good. Um, you give Perun an understanding. You, you give um, Perun an understanding of your character Baxter's aggression, and he gets inside Baxter's head, literally. Were you making a connection with aggression on a wider scale, in connection with terrorism? It's a good question. It's a very difficult question. I'm very conscious when I was writing this that I must, at all costs, avoid a sort of lumbering allegory in which Henry Perone, immensely privileged, um, well-off, content, um, has to deal with unreason uh, from uh, a very unprivileged quarter. Uh, that this didn't turn into a kind of a miracle play, as it were, um, about the West and um, uh, whatever we want to say, the Third World or the slums of Raul Pindi. And yet, I, I suppose I wanted some of that there. Um, but I hoped I would make these characters too specific to look like great symbols of something. That was all. And I asked around among um, uh, psychiatric friends for an affliction. I really did want Baxter to have all of life's misfortunes. Uh, and all of life's misfortunes are easily rolled up into Huntington's disease. I mean, there is nothing more unfortunate, I think, in that given the number of repeats you have of, of the codon CAG on your fourth chromosome, one gene, uh, the number of repeats will more or less determine your fate. You know, so, so a doctor could tell you, you know, once this has been sort of looked at closely, uh, if you have 57 repeats of CAG, this will be the date, you know, the age at which you have this onset. Um, the more repeats, the earlier the onset. And it seemed, 
it's extraordinary that uh, in modern medical conditions, we've created something of the arena of fate for characters in a Greek tragedy, that, that your future could be told by the oracle, except the oracle now is wearing a white coat. And, and your descent, about which no one can do a thing at present, is mapped out before you. Uh, so I hoped in that I was taking it away from you know, any discussion of um, you know, ma- making Baxter represent anything other than a, um, a private misfortune. But it, it, it's there as a background. So. And I'm terribly sorry uh, to say this, ladies and gentlemen, but I can see an orange light that you cannot, and I, it tells me that we have to vacate this for the next orange session. Means, uh, Thank you so much for coming. I should have said... You can, and I would say you ought, to buy and get signed Mr. McCurdy's book down at the store. Thank you very much for coming. Will you join me in thanking him? Thank you.